chapter 9 and beginning to read at verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Some versions, and I think most scholars believe that that verse should be the other way around. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the zeal of mine, impos- the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plough in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. I think you would have learned if you've been with us through these studies in recent weeks that the Corinthians, for the most part, thought more in terms of I rather than we. They thought of themselves individually rather than their collective responsibility to one another in the Lord Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters. And as a result of that, when they considered their freedoms in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last week in chapter 8, they focused on the benefit that they received personally from the freedoms that they had in Christ and they failed to consider the repercussions of exercising their freedoms. How it affected their brethren and sisters in Christ. And all they seemed to be concerned with was their rights of liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the repercussions were for their brethren and sisters. So Paul had to teach them that while their freedoms were valuable, And while their liberty in Christ was a right that they had of grace, those freedoms, those liberties, were not more important or more valuable than the gospel itself. I think I will see that more clearly tonight in the illustration that Paul gives us of this principle in his own life. Christians, he's telling us, 
in principle in chapter 8, and now by his own example, Christians, when it is called upon them, ought to feel able to discard their freedoms readily and eagerly when they need to do so for the purpose of the gospel and for the betterment of their brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Principle was laid down, chapter 8, verse 9. Let's remind ourselves again. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. We saw last week that their Christian liberty, although it was their right, and although the Corinthians were thinking in terms that were theologically accurate, absolutely correct, and sound, Paul was coming in with a new principle that was unknown to them, that their liberty was to be limited and regulated by love. It's all right being truthful and having all the truth at your disposal, but Paul says that that is not, not enough. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am as a sounding gong or a tinkling cymbal, and I am nothing if I have no love. Even if I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and give my body to be burned, if I have not charity, I am nothing. We saw that clearly. That our rights end whenever another person, especially a brother or sister in Christ, is offended. And if we offend one for whom Christ died, and we cause one to stumble for whom Christ shed his precious blood at such a cost, it is a great expense. But what Paul's showing us here this evening in chapter 9 is an illustration, a personal illustration, how he didn't just practice what he preached, but he preached what he practiced, which is more important. This wasn't something that just came out of his head and he, he hadn't done it yet himself. This was the way Paul had lived experientially. And in verses 1 to 14, we're going to see tonight how he sets forth what was his right as a minister of the gospel of Christ. What was his entitlement as an apostle of Jesus? Next week, verse 15 to 18, we will see, and we'll see a little bit of it tonight, but we'll see it bore out more and explain more in the later verses, the reason why he didn't take advantage of what was his right as an apostle. And later on in verse 19 to 27, we're going to see how Paul was not only willing to give up wages, not willing just to give up his food and his drink, but he was willing to give up anything and everything, whether it was his right or not, for the sake of winning other people to the Lord Jesus Christ, that by any means he might win some. Now, this is very hard for us to swallow, because we live, although we're Christians in this Western affluent world, and in the free West, that I hope we don't take for granted at the present time, we're told to value our freedom. But we can err on the side of valuing our freedom to such an extent that we are unwilling to give up our rights for anything. And because of that, we have a society that is obsessed to an extreme with what is their individual rights. Now, Paul's coming in here in chapter 9, trying to encourage these Corinthians to forfeit their rights for the sake of others. 
He does this by describing his entire ministry as one that never grasped or grappled or wrestled for his own rights, but one that was a life of servitude, sacrifice, and one of accommodating others for their good. Let's look at this example of the principle that he's already laid down to us. The first thing that Paul does is he proves his authenticity. In verse 1 and 2, what he's really concerned with, before he enters into uh, describing his rights, he has to argue for the fact of whether he's an apostle or not. And we assume right away that that was disputed by the Christians that were in Corinth. Am I not free? Verse 1, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. They questioned the fact that he was an apostle at all. Now to answer that accusation, he gives four questions, rhetorical questions, to which there are obvious responses. Am I not free? Now if you've been following this book with us in recent weeks, you will see that the Corinthians esteemed their freedom and their liberty as something so precious that they were even willing to offend the weaker brother to safeguard it. Well, Paul's coming in here right away and saying, well, am I not free? If you're defending your own liberty, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And remember that an apostle, although it simply means a sent one with a commission, we're talking about the narrow terms and definition of apostle, i.e. one of the twelve, one who were the chosen of the Lord Jesus. And although Paul was not one of the original twelve, we know that he was classed and esteemed as the apostle to the Gentiles. And consequently, not only was he free as a Christian, but you would imagine that if he was an apostle, he had liberties that other Christians didn't have. In other words, he had an authority and a jurisdiction over the church that you or I do not have. He was a central leader with all the apostles in the church, and therefore he had responsibilities, but he also had freedoms. And therefore, what he's really saying here at the beginning, the church doesn't have authority over me. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? It's the reverse. I, therefore, as an apostle, am free and have authority over you in current. You who are so fond of asserting your own liberty, so I, Paul, cherish my liberty very well. As an apostle, I need my liberty as a responsibility to rule in the church of Jesus Christ. So you see how he's answering them right away. And then he goes on to prove his apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? We read between the lines and assume that they were saying, well, if Paul is saying he's an apostle, and Acts chapter 1 verse 22 says that to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't one of the original 12 disciples that were with the Lord when, they, when he was on the earth. Therefore, Paul cannot be an apostle. But he comes back and he says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course, it's a rhetorical question, and he's implying the answer, yes, I, I have seen. And the requirement of being an apostle was to see the risen Lord Jesus, and we know from the book of Acts alone that the apostles saw the Lord Jesus risen on at least three occasions. 
Now let me prove this to you. If you turn to his conversion in Acts chapter 9 for a moment. This is the primary example of when he saw the Lord. Acts chapter 9. You know the Damascus Road experience. And I'll take time to read the first three verses. Verse 4. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. He saw the Lord. But that is not the only occasion. For if you turn to chapter 18, although this is a vision, nevertheless, he claims to have seen the Lord, the risen Christ, in the vision. Verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. The Lord spake by a vision. So it wasn't just audible, it was visual. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. A third occasion, chapter 22. It's another vision, admittedly, but yet it's still a sight of the risen Lord. Verse 17 and it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even when I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee up quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. The mark of an apostle was to have seen the risen Christ. And Paul was defending the fact that he had the mark of apostleship. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? The signs of the apostle, and this is an important one because there's men claiming to be apostles around our land. In fact, only last Thursday night we received a bundle of uh, tracts and leaflets through the door and one of the deacons gave one to me to, for, to, to read to see what it was all about. And I began to read uh, and the first couple of lines right away smacked of heresy. This guy, I don't even know who he was, but his Christian name is Malcolm said, Malcolm, an apostle of Jesus Christ sent by God. There are men even in Belfast who think that they are apostles of Jesus Christ. Have they seen the risen Lord Jesus? I think not. The mark of apostleship. But then there's the signs of apostleship. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12. And he's telling the Corinthians, they should know this. They have seen this among themselves. First, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And Paul had performed these signs of an apostle among them. They shouldn't have had any doubt whether he was an apostle or not. So he had the mark of an apostle. He had seen the risen Lord. He had signs of an apostle, signs and wonders and great mighty works and miracles. And then he says in our passage in Corinthians 9, that he also had the seal of the apostle. Are ye not my work in the Lord? Verse 2, if I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. What he's saying, if I can paraphrase it, if anybody should know that I'm apostle, it should be you. 
because not only have you seen these signs of an apostle, but you are my seal as an apostle. You're my work in the Lord. You came to Christ through me. And all you have to do is read Acts 18 to find that out, that he had founded this church in Corinth. And many of the first saints were actually led to Christ by the apostle himself. And though it might have been sympathetic for someone who had never known the apostle Paul to hear his claims and doubt that he was an apostle. But these Corinthians of all men were not ignorant. They knew the truth. They themselves were his seal of apostleship or proof that he was an apostle. Of course, you may know that a seal in ancient times was used on containers of merchandise or maybe a stamp on a letter to indicate the authenticity of what was inside it. And it also stopped people tampering with the contents or even substituting or altering it. And Paul is saying, you, you who are doubting me are the very proof, the authenticity that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Because of that, he says in verse 3, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. And that's not really in reference to what follows. It's in reference to what has come before. My answer to those who doubt my apostleship, who examine me forensically like in a law court, my answer to them is this. Now let me say that there will never be another apostle like these apostles. And don't ever believe anybody who says, I don't care where they come from or what theological camp they, they adhere to. They cannot be an apostle in the sense of these early apostles. We can never reciprocate what Paul is saying here and owning as his own. But I do want to draw two general evidences, not of an apostle, but of an authentic worker for Jesus Christ that we can take out of Paul's example. In verse 1 and verse 2, the two things we can take generally is, one, an authentic worker and server of Jesus Christ will have an experience of Christ. They will have an experience of Christ. Have I not seen Christ Jesus, our Lord? Now, obviously, you have to be born again, and that would be elementary to even state that this evening. But the sad fact is that there are men in pulpits across our land, and they've never seen Christ in salvation. Yet they claim to serve Christ. But that's not how I want to apply it. That's taken as read right away. But what we're talking about here is a living, vital relationship and communion with the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing of authentic service for the Lord. But the second thing is this, a fruitful work for Christ. Not only an experience of Christ, but a fruitful work for Christ. Are ye not my seal of apostleship, my work in the Lord? Do you see this? On the one hand, you have faith and experience of Christ. At conversion and after conversion. And on the other side, you have fruit for Christ. And if there are two marks of an authentic servant and worker of the Lord Jesus, it is both of those, faith and fruit. And that was the reason why Paul could come in as a servant of Christ with great authority, not just of apostleship, but of the fact that he knew Christ. And it was obvious he knew Christ. And he had borne fruit for Christ. So he could be dogmatic before the church of Christ. If I can put it another way. 
he knew what he believed. And he stood up. And he proclaimed what he believed with authority. And he saw fruit from proclaiming what he believed with authority. What a picture of the authentic worker for Jesus. I just wonder why. Perhaps we have so little passion in our pulpits in this day and age in which we live. Why with so little conviction among the saints of God and among men that open the word of God and preach from its pages. And I just wonder, looking at this great man of God, the Apostle Paul, is it because less and less people have an authentic experience of Christ? Not just at conversion, but every day. Is it because they don't have an authentic experience of the truths that they espouse and they preached? Is it because they have never proved these truths in their own lives or in their churches? Is it because they have never seen the fruit of their labor as they adhere to these principles of work and spiritual truths? It was Vance Havner, I think it was him on one occasion, said, don't deal in untrafficked truth. Don't deal in untrafficked truth. That simply means don't be telling other people to do things that you're not prepared to do yourself or maybe you've never experienced yourself. It was Vance Havner that said, I read of a man who had studied Arabic until he could read it, but he couldn't speak it well enough to order a cup of coffee. One may have a head full of theology without any testimony of actual experience. There was once a famous writer who studied medicine and, and was absolutely tremendous, so good at dissecting corpses, dead bodies, looking at the anatomy and the physiology of the human form, but he didn't like working with living people. There are those who enjoy theology and dry doctrine, but who don't care for living experience, a knowledge of Christ, an experience of Christ. Seeing that experience of Christ born out in fruit from your life for Christ every day and every hour. This Apostle Paul wasn't a man who read some theological book and espoused to its claims. He said, Have I not seen Christ Jesus our Lord? After all, is that not what Christianity is? An experience of Jesus Christ. And Paul bore this balance out that the book of James preaches to us. That faith without works is dead. And he had both of them. And in verse 3 he says, that's my answer to them that do examine me in this. Now, the other thing that these Corinthians were trying to do to him were push him into a narrow, unnatural bracket of human life. They were saying, well, if you're an apostle, you should live like this. If you're a servant of God, this is the habitual uh, lifestyle that you should be portraying. And they were trying to deprive him of rights that were normal to ordinary human beings. They were setting him on a pinnacle as such. That's so relevant because I find this 
as we look abroad in Christendom, that those in the church often feel it's their right to legislate what their leaders and the leaders' families should or should not do, when most of the time they don't apply those truths to their own lives. I'm not singling anybody out. I'm not referring to my own personal experience here or anything anybody's doing or saying to me in the meeting. Don't misunderstand me at all. Do you know what I'm talking about? They want the missionaries to have a certain lifestyle, but they can have another one personally. That's terrible, a missionary living like that. But you're not prepared to live like that. You're not prepared to deny yourself where perhaps you expect others to deny themselves. And the point is, Paul is saying, although I am an apostle, I'm entitled to the same privileges and joys as the rest of you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, although I'm an apostle, these things are my rights. So he's not just proving his authenticity, but he's maintaining his liberty, verses 4 to six, and he begins to ask questions about rights, his own personal rights. And the answers, again, are so obvious that one can easily sense Paul's sarcasm as he asks them. Here's the first one. Have, verse 4, we not power to eat and to drink? It's basic, isn't it? Do we not have a right to food and drink as we minister the gospel to you? Are you going to starve us? Make us thirst to death as we are giving to you words whereby you may be saved. The eternal life, the well of water springing unto eternal life. This water that will make you never thirst again and you're not going to give us a drink or a meal. This is what was happening. Verse 5. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife as well as other apostles and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Do we not have a right to bring our believing wives along with us? like the other apostles when we're going on our missionary journeys. And incidentally, there's a couple of things by digression we may note that a wife in the Lord ought to be in the Lord. See what it says here? First, a sister, a wife. Young people note that. There is to be no unequal yoke. And if it applies to an apostle, it applies to a Christian. And if you're going to consider a wife, it ought to be a sister in the Lord as well. Another thing to notice is the Roman Catholic Church would say that it's, it's required that a man of God, a minister, a priest, whatever you want to call him, ought to be celibate. But here you have Paul saying that the other apostles were not celibate. They brought their wives along. And in fact, look at one who did bring his wife along, Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter, their first pope. He brought his wife along with them. Maybe they don't know that. But he brought her along. And also as the brethren of the Lord. Does that mean Peter wasn't a brother of the Lord or the apostles? No, it means the natural brothers of the Lord that Mary and Joseph had after she gave birth to the Lord Jesus, the half-brothers and sisters of Christ. Those brethren brought their husbands and wives along. Paul says, do we not have a right? Incidentally, isn't it lovely when we were pondering last week how those who are married because of the present distress, because of how short it is to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, they should live as if they are not married. Do you know one way of getting around that rather than leaving your wife at home? It's bringing her along with you. I think this is lovely. That the wives went, they led them about as well as the other 
Apostles. Paul says, have I not a right? If I, if I want to have a wife, have I not a right to have a wife? Are you going to say I have to be celibate? That's what they were saying. Because he was saying, I wish you were like me. I have a right to be married if I want to. Then thirdly, verse 6, Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? He's saying, were I and Barnabas the only apostles not worthy of being paid for the work that we're doing for the Lord among you? Some evidently thought, I think at least that Paul's refusal to take advantages of these rights proved that he actually lacked these rights, that he wasn't worthy of the rights. And they said, well, if Paul doesn't demand a wage from us like other apostles have, and if he hasn't brought a wife along with him like the rest of the apostles, it means that he doesn't have those rights. And if they're the rights of an apostle, that means he's not an apostle at all. You can see where reason gets you at times. And so Paul has to come in here and affirm his apostolic rights. And he points to this fact that although he supported himself making tents to, to, to provide for his own needs, and even as we find in the New Testament, he provided for the needs of others by doing this. Although he did this, he had a right to be fed at their table, paid from their finances. But he stepped aside from those rights. He even stepped aside from marriage, which was his right. He had forgone these rights. Why? For the greater good of the gospel. You might be surprised that Paul is going down and after talking so much in chapter 8 about, about your rights and foregoing them, now he's starting to establish in a legalistic way like the lawyer he was the reason why he has rights. You know why he's doing it? To show them that he didn't grasp at them. He had foregone them that they might come to Christ and now they're holding that very thing against them. Look what he says in verse 12. Although we're running ahead of ourselves. The end of it. Nevertheless, we have not used this power or these rights, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel. Now listen, if you give up your job to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is saying that you have a right to be supported. But this is what he's also saying. There can come times that you should not demand your rights at the expense of the gospel. See how this principle in chapter 8 that we spend so much time on is being illustrated by Paul himself here. And I think that this policy is so refreshing in the mercenary world of Christian ministry that we live in today. Paul didn't see himself as being employed. He saw himself as being called. He didn't use his position for profit, but he found a greater service in sacrifice, a greater joy in laying his life down and foregoing his rights. And he wasn't in an if the price is right ministry. Let us get away from this cursed thing, this aching that is in the camp of evangelicalism today. Well, if you think there are abuses on one side, there are surely abuses on the other. Yes, there are churches that are starving. There are pastors and ministers today. And thank God that I'm not one of them. I'm well cared for here. But there are churches who won't support their workers when they have the ability to do it. 
God forgive them. Sam Jones said that when asked about finances in his early ministry, he always replied, I leave that with the brethren. And Sam added, and I really did, for when I left, the brethren still had it. And on the other hand, there are those not only who withhold what is the due of the ministers of Christ, but there are workers, preachers, missionaries, who are fleecing and sponging off congregations who don't have the wherewithal. Yet they're demanding it as their rights. There are congregations left without shepherds because they, they can't keep a man in the custom to which he is used. And what is Paul saying in all of this? He's saying you're not seeing what really suffers. Yes, the congregation suffers. Yes, on occasions, the servant of God suffers. But the gospel is what ultimately suffers. Oh, that we could see the bigger picture in all of this politicking at times that goes on in ecclesiastical halls. He proves his authenticity. He maintains his liberty. It's his right. And then in verse 7 to 14, he defends his entitlement. In verse 7, he begins to build the case further and he appeals to seven pieces of evidence. He's going now down a, a legal route here of proving why it's his right to have a wage. Verse 7, Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? One preacher called this chapter as he preached on it, questions, questions, questions. There's so many questions in the chapter, isn't there? But they're rhetorical, they're obvious. He answers to them, uh, stare us in the face as he goes down. The first thing he does is he defends his rights in three ways from the customary realm of society of his day. Things that ordinary people knew. The first is he defends his right by the illustration, the allegory of warfare. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? This comes home to us. This particular night as we find our nation at war, and we ask ourselves, do any of our soldiers, and we thank God for them, do any of them buy a ticket to Baghdad with their own wages? Do any of them buy a machine gun and grenades out of their own pocket and their family allowance? They don't do it. They don't go to war at their own expense. They don't pay for the things they need. They don't have to have another job to work at night because their service is for the country and the country pays their way. See where he's going? Then in customary area, he talks about a farmer or a vineyard dresser and he defends his right by farming or who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof. Have you ever seen a, a vineyard farmer going down to the supermarket and buying a bunch of grapes? Sure, it's ridiculous. He doesn't do that. He eats of his own fruit. Then he talks about shepherds. He defends his right by the allegory of shepherding. Who feedeth the flock? A shepherd, and eateth not of the milk of the flock. Do shepherds have milkmen? Of course they don't. They eat of the milk of the flock, or, or men uh, who milk the cows, eat of the herd, the milk of the herd in our nation. And Paul's really saying, 
All these customs show us that common sense dictates this, that he that lives for the gospel ought to live of the gospel. And as people in the world have a right to make a living from their own work, surely a Christian should be provided for by the Christian. I don't think the analogy should be ignored either that he uses this picture of a soldier, one who has courage, one who has loyalty, dedication, enduring hardship. That's what should be the mark of a servant of God if he's going to be supported of the children of God. To be courageous and loyal and dedicated enduring hard times. The same with a vine dresser. What's he do? He plants something that bears fruit. And what are we planting in our churches? Is it bearing fruit? A shepherd is one who takes care of the flock, doesn't leave the flock, provides food and watches for the souls of the flock. Those servants should be looked after, Paul says. Now watch what he does. He's defended it by warfare, by farming, by shepherding, and now he defends it by law. Verse 8 to 10. He says, Say I these things as a man. You see, you had these hyper-spiritual people in Corinth like you have in churches today, and when you give an illustration from life, ordinary life, they said, Oh, but that's, that's worldly. Paul says, Say I these things as a man. Is it a merely human point of view that I'm talking about here? Does God not confirm this in the law of God? He defends his right by the law of Moses. And Paul believes, obviously, that the law of the Old Testament undergirded moral principles and his moral right to receive a livelihood from his ministry. If you have a good marginal Bible, you'll see that he says in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And it's quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Now thank God we are free from the law. O happy condition. But please don't for one moment think that the law is all cruel. Because behind the God of the Old Testament law, there's the same compassion that we find in the very bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. For even that old law that condemns to death so many sinners has enough compassion to protect an old ox treading out the corn. Isn't that lovely? Reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Lord God of heaven takes note even of the little sparrow that falls. How much more are ye than many sparrows? Now I know that Paul says at the end of verse 9, doth God take care of oxen? And he's meaning, is God really uh, talking about oxen here? That's what he's saying. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about oxen. We know he cares for the sparrow. But what he's saying, is that the point God's really getting at? Or is God undergirding a principle here that transcends just farming? And that's exactly what he's doing. We know that there were two methods of treading out the grain that were practiced. And at times they would take the stalks of the grain and spread them over a flat, hard surface called a threshing floor. And the oxen or the horses would drag a weighted board across the grain by walking around and around a central position, around a pole, if you like, and this grain would be crushed. But there were other times that the animals simply walked on the grain with their feet and trotted out. And what the law is saying is, the farmer isn't to muzzle the oxen, treading treading out the corn, but the oxen is permitted when it's hungry to bend down the corn that it's treading and eat of it. 
Doth God take care of oxen? Or verse 10, saith he it altogether for our sakes. Isn't that lovely? It's for our sakes. Even that old law was given. There's a deeper moral principle undergirding the law. And it's summed up when he says in verse 10, that he that ploweth should plough in hope, and, and he that thresheth should thresh in hope, should be partaker of his hope. Those who thresh, they ought to have hope in sharing in the harvest. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think at times there are double standards operated in the church of Jesus Christ with regards to missionaries and servants and evangelists and so on. But Paul says to Timothy, there are not ought to be double standards, but the one that labors among you in the word of God ought to be due double honor. Verse 11, he said, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? What's he saying? We sowed spiritual seed among you. And surely we have every right to reap material harvests. And you know what he's doing? He's setting the spiritual and the material in contrast. And he's saying, Surely it's insignificant if we've given unto you the words of eternal life and are building you up and feeding you spiritually that we should receive material things from you. But you know what the problem was? They esteemed the material things greater than that which was spiritual. I wonder, do we do that today? It'll be born out, as one man said, you'll know how evangelistic a church is by looking at the budget, how much they spend on it. My friends, surely the spiritual is more important. And in verse 12, he indicates that these Corinthians, they were supporting other workers that weren't even laboring among them at this particular time. Look at it. If other be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Do we not deserve it? And I think it's probably these other Christians, maybe Apollos, maybe Cephas, who came after Paul and settled the church there and led them to Christ. And he defends not only by the law, but by precedent. You've done this for other people. Surely I have a greater right when I'm the apostle to the Gentiles and I led you to Christ in the first place. Oh, he's building up some case here, isn't he? But here's the point, the crescendo, the climax, second part of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Others who came after Paul claimed their right and got it. But he didn't claim it. That's his point. It was my right. And he's built up the case not to get what it is his due, but to show them that he had foregone it for their good. Why does he do it? Not to show how big a man the Apostle Paul is, but to show them that they ought to do it too for their brethren. Forego their rights. He said, and this is tremendous, but suffer, I suffered all things. You know what that Greek word is? It's the word endure, stego. And it can be translated like this, to pass over in silence. He's saying, I put up with not being given enough food on the table, not enough drink 
to quench my thirst. I had to work on tents with my own hands for my own needs and the needs of my brethren, and I suffered it in silence. Why? That it would not hinder the gospel. That's why. I tell you, a dose of this would be good for all of us. How many of us would pay our own way to get the gospel He says, I did this not to hinder the gospel. Look at that wee word, hinder, for a moment. That's a Greek word that I'm led to believe is a surgical term for making an incision, a cut. And what he's really saying is, I didn't want with financial needs to cut the body of Christ to such an extent that it would wound the gospel. And at all costs, He was trying to avoid the impression of a financial interest in the ministry that God had given him. He defended it by precedent. Now he defends it by priesthood. Sixthly, verse 13, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar. And you know that these priests and Levites got their food from the temple offering and shared in what had been sacrificed on the altar. And then in verse 14, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach of the gospel should live of the gospel. He concludes in the same way the Lord Jesus himself. This isn't just mere human wisdom. The Lord himself said, The workman is worthy of his meat. Matthew 10.10 And to the 72 he said in Luke 10.7 The laborer is worthy of his hire. Defended by the Lord. And his conclusion couldn't have been stronger than that. What a case. Defended by warfare, farming, shepherding, law, precedent, priesthood, and the Lord himself. Yet at the end of it all, he didn't claim his right. Why? Because the Christian worker is not to be seen as a wage earner. But he's to be thought in terms of love rather than law. Gratitude rather than duty and compulsion. Now give me a couple of minutes here as I draw this all together because there's principles and obligations that we can apply to our lives. Paul had authority that none of us have or no modern worker or preacher or missionary has. But yet we ought to submit to this apostolic authority we find here. And here's about four or five ways we can do it. One, we should support our workers. And I thank you for supporting me. But there's more than me, you know. There's missionaries, there's evangelists, there's organizations, and it's up to us to support them. And there's the work here, and we'll be building soon, and it's our duty to support it. Second, we need to realize that expressing our freedom in Christ, although it is our right, it may hinder the gospel at times. Thirdly, lost souls, what a principle this is, are more important than our rights. Fourthly, we need to cultivate a love for others that motivates us to place their need for the gospel above our desire for freedom and rights. I love Philippians 2 as we have been meditating in it. And what does verse 6 say? He was found in the form, he was in the form of God, the morphe of God. Yet he thought it not something to be grasped at. 
made himself have no reputation. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He, the Christ, didn't grasp at his own deity. He had it. But he didn't revel in its privileges. I love those old Moravian missionaries and there's a story told of one of them who was in the West Indies and no matter how much he tried, he could get no access to the natives because they kept they were kept working all day as slaves and then when they got home at night, they were too tired to be receptive to the gospel. And after he had tried every plan he could think of and failed in every one of them, the verse, Romans 12, verse 1, came to him about offering your body as a living sacrifice and he took drastic action and you know what he did? He sold himself into slavery to one of the plantation owners. And he was driven every day with those colored men into the field to work. But it was there he could speak to them. He forgot, went his right of freedom for the cause of the gospel and for the cause of Christ. How much do we do that? Now come on, we're not talking about pastors and missionaries here and evangelists. This is for us all and we'll see this next week. Are we obsessed with our rights? Or can we say in the spirit of Christ, like the Moravian man, like Paul the Apostle, and like the immutable C.T. Studd, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Next week we're going to see the workers' responsibility to the church and to the gospel. Oh, our Father, let our lives be given and every moment spent for God, for souls, for heaven, and all earth's ties be rent. Lord Jesus, thou givest thyself for me. But what have I given for thee? Lord, let our lives not be a hindrance to thy gospel. But may our deaths be a testimony to it. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.